0: May I be willing, Lord, to bear daily my cross for thee, even thy cup of grief to share. Thou hast borne all for me, lest I forget Gethsemane, lest I forget thine agony, lest I forget thy love for me, lead me to Calvary. The hymn writer says, I'm going to forget unless I keep going back to Calvary. I'm going to forget. And so we need to come back to Calvary. We need to come back to the central moment in all of history where the Son of God died for our sin and then a few days later rose again victorious over it. My prayer is that we would be led back to Calvary today. For some time we have been considering the final words of our Saviour on the cross before his death. I have found it to be a fascinating study These seven words or statements, each of them which give us an insight into the character of our Saviour. For three and a half years, for three and a half years, Jesus showed the world how to live. But in these final six hours, he shows us how to die. We've previously looked at the word of forgiveness. Luke 23:34 says, "Father, forgive them for they know not what they do." We've looked at the word of salvation. "Truly I say to you today you'll be with me in paradise." Luke 23:43, the thief on the cross. The third, the word of tenderness, where the Lord Jesus turns to his mother and says, "Woman, behold your son," turns to the apostle John, says, "Behold your mother." The word of tenderness in John nineteen. And then we looked at the word of isolation Eli, Eli, Lama Sabactani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Matthew twenty seven forty six. The fifth word, the word of suffering which will form our place today. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfil the scripture, I thirst. And then yet in the future to come, Lord willing, we have the word of victory, number six. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up the spirit in John nineteen thirty. And then the last, in a couple of months' time, the word of satisfaction. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Luke 23, 46. This morning, we're going to look at the fifth of those seven sayings as we consider the word of suffering. The word of suffering. Turn with me please to John chapter 19 and if you would find verse 28 in your scriptures there. John 19 and verse 28. This is the only place in the Gospels that this fifth word or saying is mentioned in the scriptures. This is the only place. John 19 beginning in verse 28. Let me read that to you please. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. The final words of a faithful saviour, part five. Heavenly Father, again, as we come before your precious word, we want to be very, very careful Uh, to immerse this time uh, in prayer, to seek your help uh, and strength and enabling to communicate this truth effectively, uh, but also to ask that you would minister to each of us individually, uh, that you would help us to understand truths perhaps we've never seen before. Open our eyes. Open our eyes that we may behold wondrous things from your word. Thank you for uh, this fifth saying. Thank you for all that it involves Help me now as I would seek to help uh, this beloved church understand the truth found here. Thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, To fulfill the scripture, I thirst. I thirst. I have to uh, make a confession this morning, and that is when I first began studying this out, I I was a little bit concerned that perhaps there wasn't all that much to share with you today. And uh, not that that's a concern, if it's short and that's all we have, that's fine. But I sort of wondered what it is that we're going to get out of this text in particular. And as I began to delve into it, I found that pages upon pages upon pages, which you'll be thankful I haven't provided all this morning. But that there is so much here, and we're just going to look at just a few things here this morning. The very first thing that I want you to note, the first point for us, uh, is I want you to see the deity of Jesus Christ. The deity of Jesus Christ. Now, you might look at that verse and think, where do we have in that verse the deity of Christ? By the way, the deity of Christ, what I mean by that, uh, opposed to some definitions today, is that the fullness of the Godhead dwells in this human being fully. This is God, the God-man, God in human flesh. That's what I mean by the deity of Jesus Christ. I want you to notice this phrase, knowing that all was now finished. A couple of thoughts for us here this morning as we, uh, we look at this particular point. Since the time of Christ's physical existence on earth, the battle over his humanity versus his deity has raged. It has raged since this time. And this is why, because of our human need to understand and rationalize all things, we talked about rationalism last week, because of our desire to understand how everything works, we are so often unprepared to look with the eye of faith at a mystery that is humanly incomprehensible. So here's my point. Some people uh, would like to say perhaps today that you as a pastor, Daniel, you ought to have all of these answers worked out fully. If that's the case, I resign because the reality is I do not have all the answers figured out by any means. I can't understand this with my finite mind. and I'm the first to confess that this is something that is beyond my reasonableness this is beyond my rationale. I cannot put this all together. And what we want to do is have everything figured out in nice little sections, pigeonholed. I get how this all works. And I'm, I'm the worst for this because I'm that kind of a person. I want to know where everything is in its little place and organized. And it drives me crazy when newsletters are upside down and all of that sort of thing. I just want to have it all exactly how I need it. But when it comes to the scriptures, the Lord is not going to let me do that. And the whole point of that is that I would be in awe of his glory and not have him figured out. So-called scholars over the years have tried to simplify and compartmentalize these incredibly deep truths. But here's the reality. Man with a finite mind cannot comprehend the transcendent God. We need to get that right because when we come to places in the scripture and we say, well, that's clearly a contradiction. It's not a contradiction at all. It's just simply you have a finite mind and he's transcendent. That's what that is. It's what we call a paradox, something that appears contradictory. But in actual fact, one day we will know how that all works together with an infinite mind. See, this is really important. God has not called us to figure him out. Did you get that? God has not called us to figure him out, but to trust all that he says. We don't need to comprehend, we need to depend. We don't need to comprehend, we need to depend. The Son of God, Jesus Christ, is omniscient. Omniscient comes from the Latin, omnis and scientia, which means all knowledge all knowledge. In other words, simply put, Jesus Christ knows everything. Now, some immediately say, well, hang on, there's some things that the Bible says that Jesus does not know. And that is a self-imposed limitation of the Godhead. That is not a lack of omniscience on his part. That is a decision made in the Godhead so that submission would be seen between the father and the son. Don't for a moment think, well, because he doesn't have that knowledge about his second return or some other aspect that he's not omniscient, not at all. That's not what that means at all. We need to get our theology right. Throughout his earthly ministry, Jesus Christ proved his omniscience and his deity many, many times. So here's something we need to understand as we talk to people. Omniscience, this matter of all knowing, is what we call a non-communicable attribute of God. What it means is you and I cannot have it. Now... We have lots of communicable attributes. Mercy, for example. Grace. We can operate with mercy. We can operate with grace. You and I cannot operate with omniscience. Nor can we operate with omnipotence. Nor can we operate with omnipresence. We can't be everywhere. We can't know everything. We cannot have all power. Those are specifically God's and God's alone. If we could have all power, we would be... If we could have all presence, we would be God. That's how we know that the devil and all of his angels do not have all knowledge. They do not have all presence. They do not know what's going on in our minds. They do not have all power. God and God alone has those non-communicable attributes. We cannot achieve omniscience by any conforming to the image of God. In fact, we will not have omniscience when we get to heaven. Because to do that, we will be God. And we are not God. The omniscience of Christ is one of many, many proofs in the New Testament, I believe, of God's, uh, the Son's deity. The fact that he is God in the flesh. Just want to give you a few verses here for your consideration, just by way of some, uh, some introductory thoughts. In John chapter 1, we're not going to turn there, 47 to 48, you might recall Jesus saw Nathaniel coming towards him. And he said to him, behold, an Israelite, indeed, there is no deceit in him. Nathanael said to him, how do you know me? Jesus answered, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Now that that encourages my heart because here's a man who has no idea who the Jesus of Nazareth is. And Jesus says, here's a guy who has no deceit within his heart. Here is an Israelite with whom there is no guile. And and Nathanael amazingly said, how do you know me? I saw you. I was right here, Jesus says, but I saw you when Philip came to you. That gives me uh, great joy to know that he's not only omniscient there but omnipresent as well. John thirteen eleven for he knew who was to betray him. That's why he said not all of you are clean. Lord Jesus knew specifically who it was that was going to betray him. In John sixteen thirty, now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. You know all things. In John twenty one seventeen you remember when the Lord Jesus uh, says to Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you remember in that one of those instances on the third time, John 21 verse 17, he said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. A couple more for you. Matthew 12, 25. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. Time and time again, the Lord Jesus proved that he was able to reason the thoughts and intents of the heart. In Luke 6 8, the same thing, but he knew their thoughts. In Revelation 2 and verse 23, in relationship to the church, Jesus says this, I will strike her children dead and all the churches will know this, that I am he who searches mind and heart and I will give to each of you according to your works. No prophet, no apostle, no preacher ever operated with omniscience. None. This is God in the flesh. And that's just one instance of a non-communicable attribute that is obviously present. In the Son of God. But our focus this morning is not so much on the deity of Christ. I want you to see point number two in our text. The fulfillment of Scripture in Jesus Christ." We see in this text, after this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, "To fulfill the scripture." I sort of like it how, you know the, the translators here have put this in brackets, and yet in actual fact, this is absolutely massive. Uh, this particular comment, that the scriptures would be fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Here's what the Lord Jesus knew. He knew who he was. He was not under any illusion as to who he really was. And he knew that the scripture had been prophesied. In the final moments of his earthly life, the Lord Jesus says, I thirst. And in saying that and the What happened after that? He fulfilled a 1,000-year-old prophecy. We read about it in Psalm 69, verse 21, where David says this, For my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. Messianic prophecy. Up until this point, not a drop of liquid had touched the lips of the Lord Jesus Christ. And knowing the scriptures, he says, I thirst. The soldiers hearing this respond, the Bible tells us that a jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. Now I had to ask myself the question, what are the chances that one of the soldiers had some of his own sour wine with him? What are the chances that there was a sponge available? What are the chances that a hyssop branch and willingness on the part of the soldiers to actually give it to the Son of God. In a moment, I'm going to explain that there were two opportunities for a drink on the cross for the Lord Jesus. This one is quite strange. The first one is not. Here's what I mean by this. This is not to be confused with another portion of Scripture that tells us in Matthew 27:34 that he was offered wine mixed with gall. This is not the same thing. This is a normal situation where the Romans would offer the Lord Jesus a drink which was uh, wine which had, was mingled with myrrh and it was a substance used to deaden the pain for those victims on the cross. That's the one that when put to the mouth of Christ he would not drink it. Remember that passage of scripture? That's the first time. That's the normal situation. You would give that to the the suffering individual just out of pure mercy so that they don't there literally have to struggle all the way through. But you know, when we read about the Lord Jesus, he refused that first substance because he was called to suffer. And later on, it would not be true for him to say that he suffered to the extreme. Therefore, you ought to also, if the Lord Jesus had taken some substance that would have deadened that pain. This is not the wine mixed with gall. That we're looking at this second liquid later on provided for the Lord Jesus is referred to as sour wine. This is the cheap vinegar of the soldiers. This is what the soldiers literally would have had with them out there in the hot Palestinian sun in order just to quench their thirst for a moment. And it's this substance that the Lord Jesus drinks moments before his death and the prophecy is fulfilled. So let me just put you in the picture. He's refused earlier this drink. The wine mixed with gall. So he still hasn't had a drop. And knowing the scriptures are to be fulfilled, here the Lord Jesus says, I thirst. And in response to that, a soldier or a group of soldiers graciously provide him with their own substance on that occasion. Is that not a providential work of God? Is that not God fulfilling his scriptures right there? And the forces of the devil can't even stop the, uh, the fulfillment of the scriptures. What an incredible moment this is in history. And I find as I study my Bible that throughout the death and the life and the resurrection and the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ, that at my most recent tally, the Lord Jesus fulfilled 456 Old Testament prophecies. 456. And that number's probably wrong because they're just the ones that I can get together. 456 prophecies throughout the life of this man. I want to just whet your appetite now. Some of you are going to say, oh no, not 456 points. How are we going to get through this? It's okay, I'm not giving you 456. Let me just whet your appetite by way of him being the fulfillment of Scripture. And this is a wonderful proof, the evidence of Jesus Christ, that he really is the Son of God promised. Well, the Bible tells us that the Messiah, first of all, would be born, would come through Abraham and bless all nations Genesis 18, Acts chapter 3 fulfilled. Second one, the Messiah would come from the tribe of Judah. Genesis 49 and Hebrews 7. The Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. Micah chapter 5, Matthew chapter 6. The first um, instance is the Old Testament, the the second is the New Testament. The Messiah would be born of the lineage of David. Isaiah 9, 6 and Matthew 1, 1. Number five, the Messiah would be born of a virgin. Isaiah chapter 7. Fulfilled in Matthew chapter 1. Number 6, the Messiah would be rejected by the rulers and leaders of his day. Psalm 118, Matthew 21. Number 7, the Messiah would come riding on a donkey. Zechariah 9.9 9, and Mark chapter 11. Number 8, the Messiah would bring hearing to the deaf, sight to the blind. Isaiah 29, Matthew 11. Number 9, the Messiah would usher in a new and everlasting covenant. Jeremiah 31, Hebrews 10. The Messiah would be the redeemer Isaiah fifty nine, Romans eleven. The Messiah would be hung on a tree as a curse for us Deuteronomy twenty one Galatians chapter three. The Messiah would be falsely accused, Psalm twenty seven, verse twelve, Matthew twenty six, sixty. The Messiah would be struck on the head, Ma- Micah five one, Matthew twenty seven thirty. The Messiah would be betrayed by a friend Psalm forty one nine, Matthew twenty six twenty three. The Messiah would be despised and rejected, we just read that. Isaiah 53, Luke chapter 17. The Messiah would be numbered with the transgressors. Isaiah 53, Matthew 27. The Messiah would be sinless and yet bear our sins, Isaiah 53. See how important that particular chapter is. Matthew 27. The Messiah would be pierced, Zechariah 12 10. John nineteen thirty-four to thirty-seven. The Messiah would be raised from the dead. Psalm sixteen, eight to 11, Luke 24, 6 to 8. The Messiah would ascend on high. Psalm 68 and Luke 24. That's just 20 of 456 prophecies regarding our great King. In every sense, in every sense, Jesus is the fulfilment of the scriptures. Now we believe the scriptures regardless of anything external we believe the scriptures regardless of mathematic probabilities but let me just let me just add one more thing here for you it was interesting some years ago when professor stoner along with 600 students at westmont college selected just eight eight of the prophecies regarding jesus and entered them into a supercomputer The results were startling and incomprehensible. The probability of these eight prophecies coming true in the life of Jesus was 10 to the power of 17. That is 10 with 17 zeros on the end. That's the probability of that occurring. Then, following from that, they thought, let's take 48 of the major prophecies and put them into this computer, and the probability came out as 10 to the power of 157. So I don't know if you can work out what number that is. If you can, let me know. That is the probability that all of those things could truly come to pass in an individual's life. And this is what Professor Stoner said at the end of the uh, experiment. Any man who rejects Christ as the Son of God is rejecting a fact proved perhaps more absolutely than any other fact in the world. That was his summary. So we see Christ is the, the fulfillment of Scripture. I know we know that, but sometimes a reminder is helpful. The third one that I really, really want to focus on this morning, that we're going to spend just a few more minutes on from our text, is the humanity of Jesus Christ. The humanity of Jesus Christ. The deity of Christ, the fulfillment of the Scriptures in Christ, but then the humanity of Jesus Christ. After this, John 19:28 says, Jesus knowing that all was now finished, said, to fulfill the scriptures, I thirst. There is a temptation for all of us to put greater emphasis on one of Christ's two indivisible natures. There's an emphasis for us to do. We either will build up his humanity or we'll build up his deity or, or we'll try and figure it out. It's 50% here, 50% there or 70% here. We, we try and do that because our minds try and figure this out. The, the reality of the truth is that Jesus Christ is 100% God and 100% man and that is unfathomable in our minds. The Jehovah's Witnesses will focus on the humanity of Jesus Christ and ignore his deity. The modern evangelicals, which we probably fall into the category of often, are so enamored enamored with Christ being God that we virtually leave off the aspects of his humanity. We're all in danger of this seesaw going the wrong way because we're trying to constantly rationalize this truth. A right view in everything. Absolute God, absolute man. Go figure that out. But failure to get this right, failure to have it the wrong way or to get it out of out of kilter will result in a faulty view of God's son. And it will lead us down the path of error because we need to stay true to the scripture, not to what we can work out in our own mind. Remember last week we talked about that rationalism and and trying to figure everything out. We're not called to do that. We need to believe the scripture and the scripture tells us that that is a reality again. We must simply believe what is revealed in the pages of scripture. Now, to put some background to all of this. There was a very popular erroneous doctrine in the New Testament church particularly uh, not in the church so much but around the church in the life of the apostle John called docetism. Some of you have heard me talk on that before. Docetism is an erroneous belief that Jesus Christ was not really human. He was a a hologram, if you like, a phantom. He looked like he was human. He looked like he had flesh, but he wasn't really flesh. And John, when you read 1 John, and we're doing that in Yay Bible Study, you will realize that almost everything he has to say is about trying to get rid of this docetism. This is what he writes in chapter 4, verses 2 to 3. By this, you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. You know what he's doing? He's saying, docetism, you're wrong. In that, on that occasion, in that particular context. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. That spirit that does not believe he came in the flesh. So That's what's going on in the early church and around the early church. This matter of docetism. Now we believe, I hope, in the humanity of Jesus Christ. Because that is crucial to some important truths we're going to look at. I've got a number of considerations for us this morning that will just form some sub points and then we're going to be finished. Here's the first thing I want you to consider. I want you to consider the paradox of his humanity. The paradox of his humanity. Here's what I mean. Here we are on Mount Calvary. The Son of God mounted on a cross between earth and heaven. The one who is the water of life now hangs on a cross thirsty. I mean, let that sink in for just a moment. If that's not sufficient, how about this? The creator of the rivers, the creator of the seas, the creator of the oceans, the creator of water itself has parched lips. The man who is omnipotent, refuses to create water for his own comfort. The one who commands the entire host of heaven, uh, to which one day every single thing will bow and confess, this is Jesus the Lord, at an instant can call any number of heavenly hosts for just a cup of water. In fact, he could even summon a soldier who, by the way, he created to give him a drink. What a paradox. The divine, the God-man on the cross is thirsty. It just doesn't make sense, does it? So consider that paradox. Secondly, For a few moments, I want us to consider the dehydration of Christ in his humanity. You'll see what I mean in a moment. Consider the dehydration of Christ in his humanity. Consider what's happened. Consider what's already taken place in the life of this individual the night before, the sorrows and the tears in Gethsemane. The Bible says sorrowful even unto death. The Bible doesn't say that the Lord Jesus actually cried. I looked through the different places, but I'm pretty sure that if you are sorrowful, even unto death, that you are someone who is crying an incredible amount. Dr. Luke records to us that Christ's sweat became like great drops of blood in Luke 22:44. Consider his dehydration. Consider the fact that as a human being with a human body, he has already lost an enormous amount of water and sweat and blood. On top of that, apart from all the other things that have occurred, the scourging and so forth, that literally ripped at his body and caused an enormous amount of bleeding, for three full hours, Christ hung in the hot Palestinian sun without a drop of moisture. Now, some of you say, well, hang on, no, wasn't it more than three? Well, if we'd say that the, uh, uh, everything was darkened, perhaps it wasn't a full six hours, but certainly for three full hours in that hot Palestinian sun, There he he is before all to see. And the scripture does not give us specific details about Christ's blood loss. But it is evident from the numerous beatings that we read of in scripture. The scourging, the thorny crown and the subsequent crucifixion that he was hemorrhaging severely. Now we've got some paramedics in our midst so they can correct me after this if I get this wrong. But I did some research and I, I... I'm really not very good with medicine at all. I'm not good at understanding any of that. I always have to ask my wife things, and I didn't get a chance because I did this late at night. But here's what I found out. The American College of Surgeons divides hemorrhaging into four categories. So you're going to school for just a minute, right? Feel like you're in a lecture? Here we go. Class class number one, equal to or lesser than 15% of the body's total blood volume. So what I understand is that when a person donates blood, about eight to ten percent of the body's blood is removed. Generally, there's no symptoms, except sometimes they feel slightly faint. Class one, class two, according to the American College of Surgeons, is hemorrhaging. Is uh, class two of hemorrhaging? Hemid. It'd be good if I get the right word, wouldn't it? Hemorrhaging is a loss of fifteen to thirty percent of blood volume. This is where symptoms of blood loss become apparent. The body tries to compensate at this point with, among other things, a faster heartbeat, uh, speeding oxygen to tissues. The individual will feel weak, appear pale, and skin will be cool. Class 3, the next level of blood loss occurs with Class 3, which references a blood loss of 30 to 40% of the total blood volume. This can be around 1.4 to 1.8 litres of blood. Blood transfusion is usually necessary with this hemorrhage of this magnitude. And then the final class, class four. This is the classification that occurs when a person loses over 40% of their blood volume. A hemorrhage so severe requires immediate and major resuscitative help or else the strain on the body's circulatory system will be too great to survive." The heart will no longer be able to maintain blood pressure and circulation, so organs will fail and the patient will slip into a comatose state preceding death. Now, the Bible is clear on this matter that the Lord Jesus never entered into a comatose state. So it's unlikely that he reached class four in its fullness. But based on what we read and what some doctors who read the passage of scripture say, he most certainly was towards the end of class three. He was certainly at a point now where what we call hypervolemia had occurred and there was a decreased volume of circulating blood. This brought incredible dehydration. And this is what the psalmist says a thousand years earlier in prophecy. I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a pot should. And my tongue sticks to my jaws, you lay me in the dust of death. Psalm twenty two, fourteen to fifteen. Does that give you an indication of the dehydration that occurred in this man, Jesus Christ? I don't say all of that to to cause you to think, whoa, that's really, you know, that's serious. I don't want to think about some of those things. And if you're a little bit weak and you don't like blood, this is not the kind of thing you want to hear. But this does give us an indication. Sometimes we, we put the Lord Jesus on a different pedestal. We make it as though this wasn't real pain, as though this wasn't a real situation, as though he really didn't suffer so much because, you know, he's the son of God. But in actual fact, this is a human being that called out, I thirst. I thirst. So consider the dehydration of Christ. This one, I want us to consider probably as much as any. Our next sub point. I want you to consider the empathy of Christ in his humanity. It is essential, church, that we remember the humanity of Christ and his empathy with all that relates to human struggle. We've got to understand this because, you know, this is one of the great joys in our life when we are struggling with things that are going on and circumstances around us are hard or we have a physical ailment or a malady. We're able to look to the son of God and how his attitude was in spite of all of those things that were occurring. One of the one of the reasons God sent his son in human form was that we would be able to look to him and say, I'm going to be like him in his death. I'm going to be like him in his life. I'm going to be like him in his pain. I'm going to be like him as he was betrayed and as he had enemies and all of those things. That's one of the reasons why his humanity is absolutely crucial to theology. I've got a few things I want to mention here. Hebrews 4.15 tells us that because he was human, Jesus understands and sympathizes with every one of our frailties. Everyone. For we... Do not have a high priest that cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmity, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. So here's some things for you to consider. Luke 2.7 tells us Jesus was born. Jesus was born. Well, God isn't born. This is humanity. Jesus was born. He existed. If Jesus is God in the flesh, then he existed beforehand. But in a human sense, he was born. He understands what it is to be born. Luke 2, 40 to 52, tell us that Jesus grew as a man. He grew in stature and in wisdom and in knowledge and favor with God and man, the Bible tells us. John 4 and verse 6, Jesus became weary. We have these images, don't we, of this super strong human being who, you know, is able to do anything in one sense. We know that to be true in his uh, eternal deity. But he was also a man who was weary and weakened in the flesh. Mark 4.38, you remember that occasion where there's a storm in the boat? What's Jesus doing? He's asleep. The Lord Jesus required sleep. That encourages some of us, doesn't it? We all need some sleep and we say, uh, if the Lord slept, I'm allowed to sleep. That's good. Jesus suffered thirst. We just read that, John 19, 28. Jesus experienced hunger in Matthew 4 and verse 2. Remember, he's been out in the wilderness after his baptism now for 40 days and 40 us. And what does the devil do? Come along and say, well, why don't you turn this into bread, this rock, because you are a hungered. The Lord Jesus experienced Hunger. Matthew 6, 3 tells us that the Lord Jesus was a carpenter. He knew what it was to work hard. He knew what it was to work under a system that was a vile government system. Sometimes we look and think, nobody understands the situation we're in. We've got a government that is just appalling when it comes to morality these days. The Lord Jesus knew he was under the Roman Empire. And I don't have to tell you some of the things that happened in the Roman Empire. Things that are not happening in our current day yet. Jesus grew physically weak, Matthew 4.11, Luke 23.26. Jesus wept, John 11.35. Jesus faced vehement temptation. May I say, when you say, the temptation for me, nobody else understands. Jesus Christ experienced temptation at a velocity that none of us will ever experience. The devil's personal presence was constantly seeking to bring the Son of God down. Don't think for a moment that your temptation is somehow not what the Lord Jesus understands. In Luke 9.22, the Lord Jesus knew rejection. Ever feel rejected? Ever feel like people are against you? Ever feel like family? You know, I've tried so hard, they just reject me. Lord Jesus knew what rejection was. He knew what rejection was more than any other man in history. John 6.66, Jesus suffered loss. Remember that time where he says, unless you eat of my body and drink of my blood as a metaphor, he says you cannot be my disciples. And the, the, the Bible says that many of that day decided we're not going to be your disciples anymore. Jesus suffered loss. That, that, that hurt, the Lord Jesus. So the hurt that we see in the Lord Jesus, that's not sin. That's what it is to be human. Hurt in itself is not a sinful thing. And the Lord Jesus understood what hurt was. He understood what it was to suffer loss. He understood these things. In John 20 verse 9, Jesus was misunderstood. He's telling the crowd something and the crowd misunderstands. You ever felt misunderstood? Saviour was misunderstood. In Mark 15 verse 3, the Lord Jesus was falsely accused. People pointing the finger at you and say, hey, listen, what you've done here, I I haven't done that. And yet you you seek perhaps to help people to see, I haven't done that. And yet they still believe the worst about you. The Lord Jesus knew what it was to be falsely accused. Here's one that perhaps we don't think of in terms of this, even though we know it to be true. The Lord Jesus was physically abused in every sense of that word. When I talk to people who have uh, had some kind of physical abuse in their history, the very first person that I go to is this person right here. Because if there was ever an individual who understood physical abuse and it was not worthy on any sense, no punishment was worthy of this man. He understood physical abuse. John 19, 3. The Lord Jesus even understood sexual abuse. You say, what? He was exploited before everyone. And don't believe the pictures that you see. I understand why they cover up the Lord Jesus uh, in the, the various parts of his body. But the reality of it was, the Roman situation was that a person would be completely naked on the cross. The Lord Jesus, before the crowd there, didn't have a little loincloth on. He was completely exploited in every sense. History tells us that. And and even those who would say, well, sometimes, you know, they they, they wrapped a loincloth around these individuals. Uh, This was a man they hated to the extreme. They are not going to provide anything. That is a covering for the Lord Jesus. He was sexually abused. He was sexually exploited before men. Maybe you have had something in your history, and then of course in luke twenty three forty six Jesus died. Jesus died God didn 't die because God cannot die. Uh, I must admit um, I appreciate um, is it John or Charles Wesley, and can it be? Uh, but the reality of it is that My God should die for me. I understand again what he's saying, but the truth is God cannot die. But in his humanity, the Lord Jesus died. The Lord Jesus died. You know, Jesus understood homelessness and poverty. Matthew eight 20. you're struggling for finance at the moment, wondering, Lord, what it is? What, how are you going to work this all out here? Because I don't have any finance. I don't have the means of getting finance. I, I don't have a home. I don't have a lot of things. The Lord Jesus knew that. The Lord Jesus sympathizes with your need because he says, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests. But the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Nowhere to lay his head. He had no physical earthly wealth. The Lord Jesus understood betrayal. Matthew twenty six forty five. you may have been betrayed. Someone that you love, look at the Lord Jesus. Three and a half years I spent with this individual. I, I, I spent it, I invested time with Judas Iscariot. I spent time uh, helping him to understand the truth. Now he knew from the beginning because he's omniscient that this was the one. And yet the Lord Jesus maintained that and he was betrayed in the garden with a kiss. Some of us understand what it is to be betrayed by those closest to us. Lord Jesus understands that. Maybe nobody else will, but the Lord Jesus does. On the flip side, the Lord Jesus understands the accolades of a crowd. In Luke 19, he comes riding in on a donkey and all the crowd cheer. He's famous for a moment. And then in just under seven days, that same crowd is going to cry, crucify him, crucify him. And then lastly, and there's so many more, Jesus understood what it was to bear sin even though sinless. Here's something that I've heard a lot of Christians say. Well, you know, yeah, sure, the Lord Jesus understands everything except you know, he doesn't understand anything about sin. No, that's not true at all. That's not true at all. The Lord Jesus, though sinless, he bore your sin. He literally bore in his body, in his stripes, in who he was, your sin and my sin. He fully understands the concept of sin, though he is without sin. So when you say things like, you know what, the Lord Jesus doesn't understand. He doesn't understand in one sense what it is to have a sinful flesh. That's true. But he understands what it is to bear sin. I want you to consider the empathy of Christ in his humanity and apply that to your life life. This morning with whatever it is that you are facing. And then the last thing before we close this morning. Is I want you to consider your own thirsty soul. Consider his thirst. But now I want you to consider your own. Turn it to ourselves. As we consider this thirsty Christ. And as we partake at his table in remembrance of him in just a little while. I want to state a few truths here for us. First of all thirst is the natural state of a human being. We are naturally thirsty. Just ask a mother who's just had a, uh, a newborn child. That child is thirsty. And it wants you to know that it's thirsty. We had the opportunity of, uh, of going to see some people recently who've only had a child not too long ago. And uh, I don't know all the ins and outs of all of that, but I know that there are times, you know, four to five hours constantly, you, you, you're flat out with this reality, the thirst. The thirst. We are born thirsty. But you know what? Every soul, every soul is a thirst and every soul seeks satisfaction. Henry Scougal, a Scottish theologian, writes, The soul of man hath in it a raging and inextinguishable thirst. Ravi Zacharias, most of you would be familiar with as an apologist, says no matter how much we try to run away from this thirst for the answer to life, for the meaning of life, for the intensity, only gets stronger and stronger. We cannot escape these spiritual hungers. As humans, we pursue soul satisfaction. There is something within us that says, I have to find satisfaction. But here's what normally happens. We turn to pleasure. We turn to alcohol, we turn to sex, we turn to money, we turn to power, we turn to fame, we turn to prestige. We turn to all of these things that we find localized in the world. We even pursue medications and drugs to deaden the emptiness and void within. We ignite the passions and sensations of the body. We even sometimes go to such extremes of self-flagellation, masochism and so forth in order to feel something. I've spent many times with young people who have got to such a point in their life where they are now involved in hurting themselves because uh, there's just within me, I just want to feel something, they say. So far have we gone to try to find some kind of pleasure or happiness that even that which hurts has become something that I want to inflict upon myself. That's where we end up. When our soul is not satisfied in Christ alone. You see, the supreme issue in the culture and even in the church is Jeremiah 2.13, where Jeremiah says, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and they have literally hewed them out cisterns that are broken and can hold no water. And so, church, let me remind you this morning that if you have tasted of the fountain of life, if you've tasted of this Jesus Christ who provides all in all, you are complete in him. Why? Why? Oh, why do we go over here and dig a system that is broken, that holds murky water and that it cannot satisfy? Why do we go to the world to find our satisfaction when we know that it is fully in Jesus Christ? The moment of your conversion, you knew that you knew that he was the answer you had long been looking for. But you know what happens? We get comfortable in our lives and suddenly we move our attention away from the total soul satisfaction that's in him and him alone. And we begin to wander over here and we find a little bit of satisfaction, temporary satisfaction, some pleasure of the world. That's never going to fulfill our soul's need. It must be in Jesus Christ. In fact, it was the Lord Jesus who met a lady by the well in Samaria. And he said, everyone who drinks of this water from this well, you're going to be thirsty again. He said, whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again because the water that I will give in him give him will become in him a spring of water welling up into eternal life so here's the concluding comments amazing truths the creator god became physically thirsty in order that we might be spiritually satisfied did you get that the creator god became physically thirsty that we might be spiritually satisfied. Now, you understand what I mean. I'm not saying that because he became thirsty, we have salvation. I'm saying that because he became a man and took upon himself the sin of the world and in that became thirsty, died on the cross, we have spiritual satisfaction. Here's another truth you have to know, church today, and perhaps those who don't know the Lord Jesus, when you meet the thirsty Christ at the cross, your soul will never go thirsty again. When you meet that thirsty Christ on that hill at Calvary, your your soul will never go thirsty again. His dehydration resulted in showers of blessing for us. His suffering was the means of our justification. His bleeding brought our redemption. His hemorrhaging... Open the gates of heaven. And so now the risen Christ in heaven beside the father says this in Revelation 22 and verse 17. At the end of the age, at the end of the book, this is what he says. Come and let the one who hears say, come and let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. Christ, our water of life, the one who was thirsty for us. We're going to pray and then I'm going to encourage you to break off for about five minutes into our cell groups for just a few moments. And then we're going to come back together and partake of communion. So we're not going to take a long time to do it, but let's pray. Lord, thank you for this time in your word. Thank you for all that we have seen uh, in the person of the Lord Jesus. Thank you that he is God in the flesh. Thank you that he is the fulfillment of scripture. Thank you that he is humanity and is able to understand and empathize with all of the things that we wrestle with moment by moment. And we thank you for the call to drink of the water of life that he provides. Lord, as we would partake together in just a few moments, we pray uh, that, Lord, we would do so in such a way that would bring you honor and glory, that we would truly be led back to Calvary, led to Gethsemane, led to the, the places that uh, produce within us a, a great thankfulness for all that our Savior has done. Lead us to Calvary again, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.